Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, happy Memorial Day weekend. Thanks for uh, sharing it with us. A lot of of energy there coming at you. Just so you know, uh, today we are celebrating with our Pasadena Brazil campus. It is their 100th anniversary as a congregation. Yeah, we're excited about that. So uh, just so you know, uh, they get cake today. You don't. So... uh, been thinking about uh, the reality of how we live and the things that go on, and I was thinking maybe what would be good today is if I were to teach something that would allow us to change the world. Now, I realize immediately that you'd be like, yeah, right. (laughs) And it leads me into sort of a thought process, and that thought process is about the fact that There's a difference between values and virtues. I didn't really know this for a long time. I didn't understand it. And then I, you know, got into a symposium with some really smart people and they explained it to me. Value is what we give intellectual assent to. But virtue is what we do in real life. It's the practice of things. We value a lot of stuff, don't we? That's our culture. We value a lot of stuff, but we don't practice the virtues of those values. They, don't, they rarely translate into real life, real things that happen to us, real things that sort of guard our behavior. George Whitfield said, I have preached to millions, but John Wesley changed the world. And his idea of that was that George Whitfield taught a lot of values and a lot of people listened to the values. But John Wesley imposed practices on people. That's why they were called Methodist. And it was the practice of the values that actually changed not only humans but stuff. So what would happen to you and what would happen to me if we didn't just today give intellectual assent to some things... But we actually said, I'm going to implement them in actual virtue in my life. I'm going to put them into practice. And this little series, Active Listening, is sort of built around that idea that we ought to listen more to each other. In fact, the reality is that in listening to others, that is a tremendous gift. That is a tremendous gift. I love the quote we had the other day that said, basically, it is within the context of listening that we become that we expand, that our souls actually get created. When someone listens to us, we explore. We start to understand some things about ourselves as well as others. And so we've had these uh, ideas of the golden rules, and we're kind of, you know, if you're keeping track, we're up to number four today. The first one is the foundational truth. We need a place that is cathartic for us. We need a place to unload our burdens, to, to just get it out. And so the foundational truth is that God actively listens to us. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. We have a place where we are allowed to lay down our burdens, to let it go, to let it out. 
and it matters. It matters that this is a part of active listening. Somebody needs to actively listen to us if we're going to actively listen to others. Number two, the core commitment. We will commit to actively listening. Actively listening to each other. We talked about, if you remember, debate and dialogue and discussion and the difference between those things and how seldom in our relational conversations we actually engage in genuine dialogue with someone. And then last week we talked about confirmation bias. Your brain is an amazing thing. It can handle a million data points and instantly filter out the ones you don't like and instantly hang on to the ones you do like, which causes us to become a little self-reflective in our active listening, that we know this about ourselves, that we live with the reality of confirmation bias, which, by the way, is also how social media works, except it actually has an algorithm to give you more of what you like to read and less of what you don't like to read, which causes us to be largely uninformed folks. Amen? At least I ought to acknowledge it. To get it out, if we're going to be active listeners, we've got we to gotta know that that's true about us. And today, we're going to talk about the mercy rule. Most of us are pretty up to speed on the commandments. We, we know them. I mean, you know the big ten. Most of us are, you know, we're pro, pro ten commandments here. Amen? And if I said, what are the ten commandments? You would probably be able, at some meandering way, to get to all ten of them. In some form or fashion. Not in order. You know, you've got to be like a quizzer to, to get them in order. But, you know, just the rank and file of us. Eventually, we'll, we know you can't kill people. You're not supposed to steal. You know, we get fuzzy. You know, down into the bearing false witness. And some of those are like, ah, I don't know. Really, false witness? That's one? Okay. So we know those. And then we're, we're pretty familiar with sort of the other commandments that sort of came through Scripture. So when Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? We all know this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. This, this ties it all up. So we, we know that one. We, we throw that into the commands. You know, that's the ten and the other one. You know. And then he does this other distillation in Matthew 7, 12, when he says, well, here it, here's the summation. Just treat other people the way you want to be treated. So that could be a command in there because it's a summation of all the ten. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. We get that one. We're, we're even up to speed on the fact that on that Thursday evening, what we call now Monday Thursday, that Jesus looked at the disciples and said, A new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love one for another, both both really good news and really convicting. Amen? Yeah. I mean, they're not going to know that you're my disciples by your pontificating. They're not going to know that you're my disciples by your pristine theology. They're not going to know you're my disciples by the creeds you can quote. They're going to know you're my disciples by the quality, by the virtue of the love you practice with one another. That will be what signals the kingdom of God. So we know that command. We, we got it. We connect with it. We understand it a little bit. But I think there's a, a, another command that's hidden in plain sight. So when you begin to think about 
how this all works, let me just read you a little story and you can see if you can pick it up. The title, by the way, of the sermon is a hint. And the title of the sermon is The Mercy Rule. That's the title of the series is Active Listening. So some of you get a B minus. Others of you get a D for not participating. Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So I want to set this up for you. So understand what we're doing here. Jesus is telling a story about how God sees us, about the kingdom of God and, and what the view is from heaven from God's perspective. Everybody with me? So I want you to notice that Jesus is going to talk about several parables like this, and in them he always uses hyperbole because he wants us to get it. So this man owed 10 thousand bags of gold. The commentary on that would be, that is a lot. That is a really a lot, a lot. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you Wicked servant, he said, I cancel all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. <laughs> That's a happy little story. <laughs> and there it is, hidden in plain sight, <laughs> this command. So here's how God looks at it. This man owed 10,000 bags of gold. It's an unpayable debt. Not in a hundred lifetimes could he earn that much money to pay back. And someone else owed him a little. Now, how he ended up loaning money that he didn't have, I don't know. And how he ended up trying to collect money that didn't belong to him, I don't know. But the fact is... God looks at the situation of our lives and how we account for things, and he says, your father forgives this enormous debt, and now you ought to forgive each other's debts. You ought to practice that kind of mercy in your life. Shouldn't you, listen to the question, shouldn't you have shown mercy in the same way that I showed mercy to you? And the answer is, oh, yeah. We all value mercy. We intellectually go, you ought to be more mercy in the world. But uh, we practice the virtue of mercy. So what is mercy? I looked it up. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Now, I don't know about you what you expected to hear the definition of mercy was, but that was not what I expected. 
Here's what I think mercy is. Mercy is my incredibly generous spirit to forgive those who do not desire or seek my forgiveness. Amen? It's very philosophical. Are you merciful? Of course I am. I show mercy to everyone. This definition changes it. I'm showing mercy to those I could punish or harm, which means I know them. I know their name. We have history together. Something happened. They are indebted. They're wrong. You understand where I'm coming from? They're wrong. I have the ability to punish and harm them, but I choose not to. Not in my words, not in my thoughts, not in my actions. I choose not to. That's showing mercy. Oh, hate it. Rather value mercy than virtue it. It's bad grammar, but it works. <laughs> Amen? I want to value mercy. I want it to be all up in my head. I want to be all philosophical. I don't want to look at people who have wronged me with whom I have the ability to harm or punish. I don't want to show them mercy because I know them. I know this story. Do we practice mercy? Is that who we are? Is that a part of what our understanding about life is? It comes up again and again. Jesus even dedicates a whole beatitude to it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then we start now to get into this hidden command. We get this reciprocity. Reciprocity. There you go. <laughs> you give me an hour, I'll straighten this all out. And if you're new here, I'm not going to preach for an hour, just so you know. People leave at 11, whether I'm finished or not. When Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, we start to see this start to weed its way in. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's the command to show mercy. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What I love about that story is that some people go, see, you're supposed to get the speck out of your brother's eye. That's how it ends. <laughs> Do you get the hyperbole? Jesus almost never tells a story about this without this hyperbole. And the, the crowd would have laughed, you know. You're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye. You've got a giant plank in your own eye. There's a big board. There's a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. This is how God sees us. You've got a big stick in your eye. Stop going after the speck in somebody else's eye. You've got some work to do. You know, the, I mean, the, the assumption is you're never going to get the whole thing out of your eye. Amen? So, yeah, if you ever do, then go get the speck. But between you and I, 10,000 bags of gold. You understand where we're going here? It's an unpayable debt. You're not getting the plank out. Probably don't need to worry about the speck. Mercy. It's hidden in plain sight. It's all over the place. Luke. 736, this very awkward story. It is awkward. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, that's not a big add to the party, just so you know. It would be a weird, I mean, imagine you have people over and somebody's under the table crying on people's feet. It's just weird. It's just weird. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, and then she kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave both debts. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, who many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, do you think that what Jesus is saying is this woman has been forgiven a gigantic debt and Simon, you didn't have such a big debt. And so she really knows how to love because she got forgiven a lot, but you didn't need to be forgiven a lot. So you don't love very much. Do you think that's what he's saying? Or do you think this woman is so aware of the debt that it has caused in her immense love? And Simon, you're self-righteous and you don't know what debt you've paid. But you're not among the elite and she's not among the destitute. She just sees what you can't see. And it results in deep love. It results in deep gratitude. She's been shown mercy, but she's received the mercy. I think sometimes people in the church think God's getting a good deal. You understand? I mean, I would have picked me first too. I mean, not that pride is a sin or anything. But sometimes we have the tendency to believe, well, I haven't been forgiven much. I've been pretty good my whole life. I never acted out. I just think there's two kinds of people, those that act up and those that act out. And tend, we have a tendency to look at people who act out and go, whoa, do you need mercy? But people who just act up, their sin happens up in their attitude and in their brain. We're like, well, you don't need to be forgiven all that much. In fact, sometimes we'll even look up in there and go, well, I think that that holier-than-thou attitude is very spiritual. By this will all people know you are my disciples by your Love one for another. Mercy. The command to show mercy is really everywhere. How about this little story of mercy? And I know there's a lot of scripture today, and we're not used to that in church, so just try to be patient. John 8, 
At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and he looked at her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So, so here's a whole setting in which you got a lot of people who are, a, are in a position to cause punishment and harm. And, and they've called this situation uh, really as a test case for Jesus. They're really playing politics at the expense of this human being, which is kind of a, another whole sermon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> playing politics at the expense of this human being. And, and Jesus immediately understands. Now, by the first century, there hadn't been anyone stoned for adultery in about 500 years. So just so you know, it was not a law that was being put into practice at the time. But they knew that if Jesus said, don't stone her, that he would be breaking the law of Moses. And if he said, do stone her, he would be breaking the law of mercy. So there wasn't a, wasn't a good answer. And so what is Jesus' response? He writes in the dirt. Now, we don't know what he wrote but we can speculate <laughs> because as he writes, then he gets up and says, now anyone who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. I don't know what he wrote, but they must've all gone, uh-oh, no, none of them were willing to pick up a rock at that point. <laughs> and then he bends over and he continues to write. And then they start to leave the oldest first because of course they've had more time to sin. <laughs> Amen. I mean, they, they just had more opportunity and more things and then he looks at the woman and he says, where are they? Your accusers. There are none. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Mercy. Mercy. He has the right. In fact, she's been brought before the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. They are the people who judge such things. It is their job to impose the punishment. <laughs> but those who have the power to punish and harm instead are moved into a position where their voice is muted. And Jesus, who ultimately has the power to punish and cause harm, shows what? Mercy. There's no question about her guilt. <laughs> we don't even get into that conversation. We weren't parsing out, was she wrong or not? She was wrong. She got caught. And she still got mercy. <laughs> she still was embraced. And then we have that story in Luke 10. In which one of those lawyers asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And wishing to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> I don't want to be loving people I don't have to love. I want you to narrow it down. And so Jesus tells that story. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
who fell among thieves. And along came a priest, but he passed by on the far side. And along came a Levite, but he passed by on the wrong side. And then along came a Samaritan who bound up his wounds and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and told the innkeeper, here's some money for his care. I'll come back. If it's more, I'll pay it. Now, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Do you know the line? The one who showed him mercy. You go and do likewise. It's a command in Scripture that is hidden in plain sight. I don't know how many of us go, yep, I think that's a serious command. I think Jesus meant it. I think he meant that you and I are supposed to show mercy to those whom we could punish or cause harm. We're supposed to do something else. We're supposed to have a different response and a different reaction. All right, so quickly now, this is the passage from James. Speak and act, James 2.12, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Oh, that's a good sentence. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Number one, three quick points. Speak and act like you live under the law of freedom. So what James is doing is creating a contrast. He's creating a contrast between the Jewish law and the law of Christ, which is referenced often in the New Testament as the law of freedom. So you live like people who live under the law of freedom. Now, let's think for a moment about the New Testament, uh, about the, the Jewish law and what it represented. The Jewish law had been built up over the centuries. It started with those original Ten Commandments, remember? And the Jews thought, here's the thing. That, I don't want to live really close because you could fall right over and break one of those. So let's build a hedge around the commandments so that we're, if we break these, that's not like breaking that. So we'll, we, you know, and then let's build a hedge around the hedge and then a hedge around the hedge and then a hedge around the hedge of the hedge with the hedge around the hedge. So by the first century, the Ten Commandments had become 618 commandments. 618, that's a big one. That's a lot. You think you can't memorize the Ten Try quoting the 618. And these commands did everything. They explained everything. Who you should love, who you should not love. What you should eat, what you should not eat. How to wash your hands, when to bathe, where to walk, when to walk, when to work, what constitutes work. What are the rules? 618 rules that commanded every aspect of life. So that in very real time, folks are walking around in the world going, hang on. Okay, no. <laughs> Amen? But along came Christ who said, let me just tell you something. That is all summed up in this. Love God and love each other. That's the summation of all. 618, let me boil it down for you real quick. Love God and love others. That's what you need to do. That's what you ought to do. And oh, by the way, don't just love them because you're following the rules. Love them because you've had a transformed heart. Love them because it's a freedom. You're free. You're free. The goal here is to allow that freedom to result in the fact that we love God with all of our heart. That takes care of a lot of rules. And we love others as we love ourselves. You do know that the Ten Commandments are broken into two sections. How we treat God and how we treat others. 
there's a few about God, there's a few about others. <laughs> love God, love others, but live out of this freedom. Don't just look at the rule and go, oh, I got to love you. <laughs> love, actually, emotionally connect with people. Don't just look at the rules all the time and do what you think you got to do. Be a person after God's own heart. Be an ambassador of reconciliation in the world. Be an agent of love and redemption in the world. Live like you are under the law of freedom. Be free. Go love people. Care about them. Show them mercy. Remember the topic? What he's writing about is mercy versus judgment. What does the law inspire? Judgment. Well, let me check. Nope. You're out. What does the law of love suggest? And the law of love suggests that mercy is a very powerful thing. In fact, God looked at you who owed him 10,000 bags of gold and said, I got something for you. Mercy. And everybody you meet, everybody you meet needs mercy. They need mercy. They need mercy. Speak and act like you live under the law of freedom. Number two, speak and act like you live under the law of accountability. So then he gives us this second verse in verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I'll read it again and slow down. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now, I think when we read that... We have in mind that what that means is if I don't show mercy, God won't show me mercy. And certainly that is a piece of what's insinuated in a lot of places in Scripture. However, the Scripture also teaches us that we owed God 10,000 bags of gold and he forgave us. It suggests that while we are faithless still, he is faithful because he cannot deny his own character. So I think James has a bigger meaning than just you better be nice or God will get you. Amen? Amen. I mean, don't you hope he has something better in mind? I mean, because that's not a great. <laughs> I think what he means is this. Judgment is contagious. Mercy is contagious. You want to live in a context and ethos of mercy? Show mercy. You want to live in an ethos and context of judgment? Show judgment. Because these two things are highly contagious. You want to change the world? You want to change the world? Put into practice the virtue of mercy. You want to change your home? You want to change your family? You want to change the dynamic? There are those you could punish. There are those you could harm. Show mercy instead. And as you do... Mercy begins to multiply. It changes the dynamic that's going on. Number three, mercy triumphs over judgment. You can't really talk about any of these three without this verse. You can't talk about any of the structure until you get here. Do we at any level believe that? Because I personally have a hard time with it. Now, I don't generally have a hard time with it, but I specifically have a hard time with it. Would you like for me to confess? All right. 
It's just such a messed up system where you all sit and listen <laughs> and I purge every week. <laughs> this is when this really shows up for me with my children. Because they come to me with stuff that's going on in their life. And I am smart. I have tons of experience. And I can fix them quickly. Can I get an amen? Some other parents know what I'm talking about. That when they're talking to me, I'm like, I hope you'll stop soon so I can tell you what you need to do. <laughs> Amen? Which suggests that I'm not sure mercy is going to triumph over judgment. It suggests that there is a right way and a wrong way, and I know the right way, and they don't. And that I'm really, which by the way, also is why this has something to do with active listening. Because if I'm judging, guess what? I'm not listening. I just want you to be finished. <laughs> but if I sit in that, and here's what's astonishing. Have you ever thought of how much your children retain of those speeches that you give? <laughs> but how embracing them and showing them mercy <laughs> lasts forever? They remember very little of what you do, even less of what you say. They remember who you are forever. Are we people of mercy? Do we believe this? That, that mercy triumphs over judgment? Do we, do we look at the world we live in, a world that is cuckoo? Amen? But are we changing it? Do we, do we flood out of these doors with hearts of compassion, full of mercy, recognizing our own faults? Or we just are like, I looked at the law, and we're pretty good, and everybody out there is not. So we're going to go practice some judgment out there to get people to line up. I'm not sure that works that well. Ten thousand bags of gold. And listen to how he responds. He grabs him and chokes him. He doesn't even talk to him. He just grabs him and chokes him. Don't we do that? I don't even need an explanation. I just want you on the ground. I just want to bring you to your knees. Not in person, but on social media. Amen? In person, I'm nice. Oh, hi. It's crazy people. Don't you want to swim around in mercy? Don't you want your home filled with it? Well, it'll be utter chaos, really. It'll just introduce them to the law of freedom in which their hearts are actually changed. Instead of complying by a bunch of rules they don't believe in, they are transformed by grace, which is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. You and I, we've been forgiven much. And this command is woven through Scripture over and over and over and over. Show mercy. God, would you help us? 
we so desire to fix things. And the truth is, everything in us believes that the world gets better as we have better practices. We believe some things are right, and we believe some things are wrong, and we believe that the more we practice the right things, the more righteousness, rightness, can come into play in our world, and that it ought to affect every layer of our reality, our politics, our relationships, our culture, our morality, all of it ought to be affected by this commitment to seek what is true and good and real and substantive. But we recognize that those practices must be constantly tended with mercy and grace. We're here because of your mercy and grace. You told us specifically that by this would all people know that we are your followers by our love one for another. Would you allow us to go out from this place and in a very personal way to those whom we could cause harm, to those that we could punish, we choose mercy. And would you bring it up over and over and over and over? Would you make the application in our daily lives? Remind us that judgment is contagious. Remind us that mercy is contagious. That when we give it, it begins to flood in and we receive it back. Lord, as we sing these words and as we close this service, would you hear the cry of our heart? Would you hear our response? Would you hear our confession? Would you hear our repentance? Would you hear our questions? Would you hear our confusion? Would you speak? As you do, we'll give you praise and honor. We know it's all about you in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.